We're covering and looking at the life of David, and we're coming close to the end of David's life. And I'm really going to miss um, David. You know, it would be a lot of fun once we finish 2 Samuel to actually go back to 1 Samuel again and do another pass, maybe a little faster. But I don't know that um, we wouldn't do that, of course. But it's certainly a wonderful a couple of books. There's so much in there to learn, isn't there, about God's grace and how he dealt with his servants. And, and you know, remember that that's part of the reason uh, that the Bible is given to us um, for many reasons, but for one at least to, to think of uh, all the different things that God's servants have been through and his people have gone through. And there, there, there are moments where everything is going well, and also there, there are times where they were really struggling in sin, and, and just to know that God is faithful regardless of, of, of any circumstance that we, make, we might go through, uh, even things that we bring upon ourselves. God is such a gracious and merciful God, and he's always been that way, and he'll never cease to be that way because he's good. He's a benevolent God. He, aren't you glad that you don't serve a God that is out there in the universe? And some people think that God is like this, that he's just this power out in the universe who's just angry and, and just wanting to step on sinners and just step on them and just squelch them and send them to hell just, just because he feels like it. See, that, there are churches that preach that kind of gospel. And to me, that's not a gospel. That's bad news. That's not good news. I don't know. What, what's the word for, instead of gospel, for good news? What is it? It's just, I guess it's just bad news. Um, it's bad news. But see, that's not who God is. And one of the great encouragements I get is to see a, a, a character, a real live person like David, and to know that in spite of all of his shortcomings, in spite of his sin, that man is in heaven. And is it because he deserves to go to heaven? No. Is it because he has faith in a God who forgave him and loved him? And, and David had faith in the promises of God. That's the reason that David's in heaven, in spite of his failures, his many failures, which are on display. And I love, again, that the Bible is that way as well. It doesn't sugarcoat those things. and It tells us these things. Because if it didn't, how would we be comforted? Because every one of us in this room knows that we failed and come short of the glory of God. And even as Christians, we still fail and come short of the glory of God. And so our performance is only slightly part of it, really. But it's only after the truth of what he has done for us already. That's what secures us to glory is our faith and trust in him, what he did on the cross. And as a result of that, as a result of that worship that Jesus demonstrated on a cross nearly 2,000 years ago, as a result of that worship, I too get caught up in that. And I'm like, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to live a life that is above reproach. I want to live a life that glorifies your name. And aren't you with me in that tonight? Isn't that what we all desire? It's a good thing because we, we love Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful to be in his beloved so glad to be in the church. But So as we look at this um, last part of, um, as we look at this last part of 2 Samuel, we're going to look at chapter 21 this evening. And we've only got four more chapters to go before we finish it and get into 1 Kings. Uh, but 2 Samuel, this chapter, 21 through 24, are really referred to as a historical appendix 
to David's reign, and they're not necessarily in chronological order. Not necessarily. And in fact, of all the books in the Bible, the first uh, and second Samuel have suffered uh, more corruption textually, and, and if I'll just explain what that means. The original documents were such that they were um, somewhere in such bad shape that they, it was hard for the translators to translate them. And the thing that suffered, I think, the most was numbers. Uh, we've already talked about this as we've gone through Samuel. Numbers have been, a, uh, whether it's 50 or 500 or 5, you know, or 30 or 300 or 3,000, those things have suffered corruption because in the Hebrew, just one little dot or, or, or little, little marks can mean the difference between 30 and 300 or 3,000. And if, a, if the text is in bad shape, and um, that, that has an effect on it. But thankfully for you and I, that doesn't really affect the doctrine of the Bible, does it? It doesn't matter to me whether it's 30 or 300 in some cases, or 50 or 500, because the doctrine of the Bible is what's important, and, and I'm glad for that. And so it has seen a lot of textual corruption, and, and we're going to see one example of that tonight. We're also going to look at some themes in this chapter. The, the, there are, I'm sure are many, than, many more than what I'm covering, but I'm just going to cover the big ones. And that is just the importance of keeping vows. You know, when we make vows or oaths or promises, these things are important to God. And we ought to take promises, oaths, vows very seriously. When married couples, when we go up on the platform and we... Um, we uh, say our wedding vows, those vows are serious. And God holds us responsible for those vows. You never think of it like that, do you? Because a lot of people get up there and they just say, promise to have and to hold for sickness and health and for better or worse till death do us part. Kiss the bride. Cake. Right? And we don't really think about a lot about that, but it's very important, these oaths, these vows that we take. I would encourage you to start thinking differently about vows. Now, can God forgive you if you break a vow? Certainly he can. But the Bible says that it's better for you not to even make a vow than to make a vow and break it. And so in our culture, we're very lackadaisical about it, but we ought not to be. If we make a promise, we ought to keep that promise. We need to be men and women of our word. We need our yes to be yes and our no to be no. And, And that ought to be how we govern our our lives with one another. And secondly, the second theme we're going to see tonight is just the fortitude in finishing off the Lord's enemies, and specifically the Philistines. Because after we get through this chapter, you're not going to see or hear much about the Philistines again. David and his men take care of these Philistines, and so we're going to see that Uh, in this chapter, and we're not going to hear much more about them. So having said that, let's open our Bibles, if you haven't already. Let's read. We're just going to look at the first 14 chapters. We're going to look through the whole chapter, but let's just read the first 14 verses. And now, remember, David has already come into Jerusalem after his exile, after his son Absalom had deposed him from the throne in Jerusalem. And David went into exile, if you remember, and finally the tribe of Judah and Israel, they finally bring him back And then there was a revolt. Uh, One of the men of Benjamin, a man by the name of Sheba, led a revolt. And finally he was uh, killed. And uh, now David is back in his land. Things are still a mess. And and so let's read what it says here. Um, It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. 
year after year. And David, notice, inquired of the Lord. I'd have you underline that. David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, and he said, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Remember that, because that's very important. And the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And so he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us, and he's speaking here of Saul. Now Saul at this point has been dead, is dead, right? But as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that he should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the the Lord in Gabeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath, notice the Lord's oath, that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth. Now this Mephibosheth is different from Jonathan's son. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, that name really should be Merab, and we'll talk more about that later, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. And so they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. So then David took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. And so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And so they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, notice, God heeded the prayer for the land. God heeded the prayer for the land. Now, as we read this, you may think that this is toward the latter part of David's kingdom or at the latter end of David's reign, but it's really not. Uh, For some reason, uh, the historian who wrote this uh, evidently put this piece of information at the end of the book. And uh, many believe that the event that were, uh, especially those first 14 verses, uh, with the Gibeonites, um, that this event with the Gibeonites preceded chapter 9 of this book. 
And so we'll look at that in chapter 9 of this book because of David's comment that he made in chapter 9, verse 1, about whether there was anyone of Saul's family left that he could show kindness to. So why don't you just turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is in this book. Just go back a few chapters to, to chapter 9. And so again, we believe that this chapter, these first 14 verses specifically, at least, were... That history really belongs chronologically somewhere either before chapter 9 or in that close vicinity of the events of chapter 9. And here's the reason why, and I think this will make sense to you. In chapter 9, it says, Now David said, and this is after he had come into his kingdom and after Saul had died, David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Because Jonathan and David made a covenant that they would be good to each other and that David wouldn't wipe out his family and wipe out the tribe of Benjamin, etc., etc. And so they made a vow to do that. And so, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And so when he had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, of whom I may show kindness, of, show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of, uh, of Jonathan who is lame on his feet. And so he's speaking of Mephibosheth. It tells us in the rest of that verse, in that section there, that it is Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And so when, when he made the comment in verse 1, where is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? The reason he said that is because this passage that we're looking at in chapter 21 tonight really belongs here because after what we're going to see in this chapter is that seven of Saul's sons are going to be put to death. And David is going to allow it to appease the Gibeonites, and we'll find out why that is shortly. But those seven men, those seven siblings or, or sons of Saul were killed, but one was spared, and that was Mephibosheth. And why Mephibosheth? Because of David's oath that he had made with Jonathan. He's, he wasn't going to kill his son. And besides, he was a helpless guy anyway. He was lame in his feet. He didn't have anybody to help him. And so David even brought him into his own, uh, allowed him to eat at his own table. And we've already looked at that. And so we believe that this chapter, especially these first 14 verses, are really chronologically supposed to be put in that place. And I think if you read that, it'll make a lot more sense to you what we're going to be reading tonight. And so let's go back to chapter 21. Now it says, There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Underline that if you haven't already. He inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered. Notice, David inquired and God answered. And I love that because when you and I pray, we can expect an answer from God. Sometimes it's silence, which means not yet. <laughs> Believe me, and I know this to be true in my own life, and I'm no different than you. We're all the same in this. That when God is ready to speak to you, he will speak to you. He will make it very clear to you. If you have a willing heart, he will make sure that you don't miss what he wants for you. If you're willing, he will make sure of it. But David inquired, and God answered. And he said, why are we having this famine, you know, year after year for three years? And God answered and gave him the answer. The famine is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, 
because he killed the Gibeonites. He killed the Gibeonites. Now, this particular incident is not recorded in the Scripture anywhere where Saul had done this, but evidently he did do it. Otherwise, the Lord would not have spoken, right? Some believe that this event of Saul killing the Gideonites, Gibeonites, occurred around the time of 1 Samuel chapter 22. You might want to just make a mention of your, in your margin, 1 Samuel 22. And this was the time when he murdered the priests at Nob. Remember when David was fleeing Saul, one of the places he went was to a city called Nob where the ark was. And Abimelech, or Ahimelech, the priest, was there and 85 other priests and they served and David went there, and remember, he was given the, 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 the sword of Goliath. It was there behind the, uh, behind the ephod there in the, in the tabernacle, wherever they were keeping it at that time. And Saul heard about it, and because he hated David so bad, he knew that there's been some conspiring between Ahimelech the priest and David, even though that wasn't the case. But when you got a madman, he, he's not thinking rationally. So what does he do? He goes and reasons with him, doesn't he? He goes and he tells him, you know, tell me what you said. No, he didn't do that, did he? He killed him. He was so angry in a rage against David that he wanted, to kill any, he wanted to kill David and anybody associated with him, and that's exactly what he did. And we will look at this a little bit later, but we believe that this, this time that, um, that, that Saul killed the Gibeonites was probably around 1 Samuel 22, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But we can tell as we look at this, I had you underline, David inquired of the Lord because whenever David is, is in a good place, he inquires of the Lord. And there were moments in his life when he was running from the Philistines that rarely did he call upon God, and yet there were other times that he did. And this is a good thing for David to, to do, and it's also a good thing for you and I to do. To inquire of the Lord. To really ask Him. Let Him be a part of every, every part of your life, every decision that you make. He delights to be part of your life. That's part of the relationship. That's part of the relationship. I, want, I would like for you to write down a handful of verses so if you've got a, a pencil or whatever, or you've got your phone and you want to write them down, or you can listen, re-listen to this message again. Um, the first one is, I'm going to give you five of them, and I'm going to give you to them for a reason, and I'll explain afterwards. 1 Samuel 23, verse 2. 1 Samuel 30, verse 8. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And in 2 Samuel again, chapter 5, verse 19 and 23. And finally, in 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. And why did I bring those up? Because we're going to see David inquiring. This is really a chronology of David inquiring of the Lord. We'll, we'll know that in uh, the very first one, in, in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, 
This is when uh, David saves the city of Keilah when he was on the run from Saul in exile. He ends up saving a city from the hand of the Philistines. But it says that when they took David, they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors, which is their, their source of food. They, they thresh wheat, and, and so they would, they would take the wheat, and they would do this with it, and the, and the chaff would blow away, but the grain would fall to the ground, and the Philistines were coming in and waiting for them to do all that, and then robbing their, their food. And so David, being very indignant, he took matters and, and helped them. And notice in verse 2, it says, I'll just read it to you, you don't have to go there. It says, David inquired of the Lord, and he says, Shall I go up and attack these Philistines for what they're doing? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So with that mandate, God has given to David everything he needs. He doesn't need anything more but just to go and accomplish that thing because God has already given him the victory. Don't you love that? When God tells you to do something, do it immediately. Don't wait around. If he says, I want you to do something, do it. Be crazy enough to just obey and put your questions aside. Put your what-ifs and what-if, you know, I don't know that that's going to happen. How am I going to do this? Just go. Just go and watch what he does. Just go and watch what he does. Because if he, didn't, if he, if he told you to do something, he wouldn't tell you now and expect you to do something a month later or a year later. Because he could meet you at that time too. So listen to the Lord's voice. And it says that the Lord says, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And notice that David, even hearing his own men and the fright in their own heart, he even goes back to the Lord. And it says, David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered and said, Arise, go to, go to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. Do you see how wonderful that is? The confidence that David... And God didn't say, um, David, I told you the first time. You know, now that you're questioning me, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> Did he do that? No. Just like Gideon, David comes back a second time. Lord, are you sure about this? Yeah, David, I am sure. You go and you're going to clean house. I'll see to it. I'll make sure. And God didn't upbraid him because he was affected by the fear of his men. Do you see that? And we're like that. We can be like that. But in 1 Samuel 30, again, it says, after, and this was after the Amalekites had taken David's wives and the wives and, the, of, and families of those with David captive from Ziklag. And it was after this that he began to inquire of the Lord. David finally comes to his senses at this time, after nearly everything is lost, he doesn't know that they're still alive. But notice in verse 8, it says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And what did God do? He answered him. He said, pursue for all you, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Love that. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, after Saul had died, what does it say? It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And so David obeys. He inquired of the Lord. And I would encourage you to write these down because they don't happen very often. But he did inquire of the Lord. And it's important for us to inquire 
of the Lord. And here is a one really wonderful reason in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it says this. And this is at the very beginning of his reign. It says that when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against these Phil- the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And notice the Lord answered, Go figure. He answered him. You know what? When, when you are in distress, and I have found this to be true in my own life, that especially when I am at my end, when I've exhausted, and, and, and I hope I don't have to exhaust all my resources before I go to the Lord, I think it's more important that we go to him before we exhaust our resources. Because a lot of people do that, because we have more faith in our credit cards, we have more faith in those kinds of things than we do God. But when we go to God first, and when, when we're really desperate, I have found that God responds to desperation more than anything. He loves to prove himself strong on behalf of you and I when we are at our wit's end, when we are at the point of we're just about ready to throw in the towel, our faith is, is failing, our faith is weak, we're struggling, we're like, I, if God doesn't do something today, I am, I'm out of this, I, I, I can't do this anymore, or I'm going to lose this, or I'm going to lose that. And God loves to bring us right to the end. And sometimes he does because that's where the rubber hits the road with us where our faith is really tested. He already knows how we're going to respond, but see, I, you, need to know where we really stand. Am I really going to trust in him, or am I going to trust in my other vices that I have available, my palate that I have of when I get in trouble, I call this person. When I, have, when I get in trouble, I call this person. You know, and we have all these things, and God says, why don't you just come to me? Come to me first. When you're sick, come to me first. Confess any known sin and come to me first. And if that's the reason, I can restore you and I can heal you. If you've got a bad attitude, which I often have, I, I go to him. And I'm like, Lord, I really have a really rotten attitude. Would you help me, Lord? I am so sick of myself. I don't even like hearing the thoughts in my own head. Can anybody relate? I, I sometimes feel like a bear sometimes in my house walking around and most of it I keep in, although my wife and my daughter can attest that sometimes I, I, I talk about, you know, I just emit my grumblings. I mean, not yelling at people or anything like that, but just, you know, just discouraged and frustrated and, you know, not hurting them or anything. But I'm sure they're like, man, I wish he would just go spend time with God. <laughs> can, he, can he just go out into the woods? Lord, would you take my husband out into the woods that's what my wife would say. Take him out to the woods, Lord, to the shed, to the woodshed, and do business there with him alone. And my daughter would say, hallelujah. But notice, I think this is very interesting. And I would encourage you to read this passage and really think about it. Meditate on it. Second Samuel 5, beginning in verse 17, it says, When the Philistines heard... Uh, I said that, actually. Uh, the Philistines also went and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And so David went to Baal-perazim, and, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim, 
And they left their images there, meaning their teraphim, the, 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 the Philistines, because they were an idol-worshipping group of people. You know people like that? Idol-worshippers? They left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. And then the Philistines went up once again, and they deployed themselves again in the valley of Rephaim. And therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be that when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. That's the place where all the old folks live. I'm only kidding. And so... The idea here is that David inquired of the Lord and God gave him victory, right? And then they get in the valley and they, set, they, they get in the battle array again. And so he's thinking, oh, great, 2.0 coming up. I'm just going to do what I did the first time because it worked. It worked. I don't need to go to God. The first time he told us what to do, we'll just meet him head on. God will give us the victory. And God says, and thank God David inquired of the Lord. Because had he not, they could have got their tail whipped. Because God says, i got a different battle plan here. They're expecting you to come out. See, I love God about this. It's really unfair, actually, that God knows how to psychologically beat the enemy. The enemy's thinking you're coming on from front all the time, and, and, and they don't realize that you got one-third of your army coming from this side, one-third of your army coming from this side, one-third of the army coming in, in back of you, and you got one guy lighting the city on fire in front of you, and you're running toward that, toward the smoke, and you got people coming in all around you, and it's over. Game over. X's in the eyes. And David inquired of the Lord, said, David, don't do the same thing. I got something completely different. And it required obedience, didn't it? It required him to exercise faith. What are you talking about? A sound of marching above the mulberry trees? Whatever. He doesn't give that attitude. That's just me being me. But David doesn't. He he obeys God. And God gives him this wonderful victory. Why? Because he simply inquired of the Lord and he obeyed what God had said to do. That is the secret to our Christian life. Listen, inquire of the Lord, and then do what he tells us. And don't ask a lot of questions. Usually my questions are, are, are just confounded with a lack of faith, with unbelief. That's true. It happens. So this passage that I just read to you not only tells us of the importance of being in constant dialogue in prayer with the Lord, but also that the Lord oftentimes doesn't do the same thing in the same way. And our relationship with God is not some static set of rules and laws, but it's dynamic, isn't it? Our relationship with God is very much in these specific circumstances that we're all in. He's in the circumstances. And notice that the Lord gave him the answer as to why there was a three-year famine. He did. At the end of verse 1, he says, And the Lord answered, It's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. Because he killed the Gibeonites. And another reason we believe this was early in David's reign is because why would the Lord wait till the end of David's reign to fix something that had occurred 
many years ago under Saul's reign. Wouldn't that seem kind of weird? David comes in, from your perspective, looking at me, you know, David comes into, you know, Saul does his wicked deeds back here. David comes into power, and God waits until the end of David's reign to say, um, there's a problem that happened way back about 20 years ago. I'd like to deal with that now. No, God doesn't do that. He's like, I'm going to deal with this now. Right as soon as you're starting, David, before we go any further, I want to fix this issue that had happened. And notice in verse 2, it says, The king, David, he called the Gibeonites, and he spoke to them. And the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but notice, of the remnant of the Amorites. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Remember when we were going through Deuteronomy? And even we were going through Samuel. The remnant of the Amorites. Were the Amorites, a, a, uh, were they part of the Canaanites? Were they, weren't they one of the seven nations of, of tribes that God was going to get rid of before he would bring Israel into the land? Didn't he say that? Remember what he said to Joshua as they went into the promised land? Remember what he said? But of the city, this is Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. And this is what God said concerning the Amorites. Because the Gibeonites were part of the Amorites. And what did God say about the Amorites? Let me just refresh your memory. Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. But the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Boy, that is such... You know, if God was to do this today, he would be impeached and he would be put into prison and he would be cast out and crucified again quicker than probably what he was in Rome. He would have been castigated. He would have been suspended and canceled off Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. They would have kicked him off of all those things. They wouldn't even allow him to speak as if he can be withheld from speaking. I'm looking forward to the day when he comes back and he roars. Everyone's going to hear it. But notice, but of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Why? Is it because that they were that because God is so mean? No, he tells us. But you shall utterly destroy them. You shall utterly destroy them. Here are the people groups children of Israel, that I want you to destroy. The reason I'm bringing you into the land is because of their wickedness. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to use you as my hammer of justice against them. And God is right in doing so. What does he say? The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why? Do they need to utterly destroy these seven people groups? Here's the reason, verse 18. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. That's why. It's because of sin. God is not capricious in just killing people. He's not, he doesn't kill people. I mean, in that sense, he, he brings judgment upon them. See, there is a judgment coming. And you and I, if we are in Christ, we will never see the judgment part of God. He's already taken our judgment upon himself on the cross. That's what's so beautiful about the crucifixion. He's already taken the punishment. But those who are not in Christ, unless they give their heart to Christ, they will stand before an all-powerful God. And I hate to see that day at the great white throne judgment when all believers who have died 
Even those who have died will be resurrected before his throne, and they will be given a resurrection body, and they will live in a resurrection of condemnation in the lake of fire forever and ever, that burns forever and ever. And do you think God enjoys that? No, he doesn't. It breaks his heart. He doesn't want to see anybody. But they choose that place. You and I have to choose. And so the Amorites and the Gibeonites were part of those Amorite people, and they were to be eradicated. They were to be destroyed. Again, why? Because of their sin. And when we were in, if you go to Israel with us one year, um, you'll see the very Canaanite altars. They discovered this up in Megiddo, and I got pictures of it. And you can't even get near it because they got it all roped off. But there was an actual altar that you can see there in Megiddo. And uh, it's approached by stairs, and it's made of these crude rocks, and they uncovered it. It's still there. And they used to sacrifice humans, babies, on that altar to their gods, their false gods, Molech and, and Baal. They would sacrifice human beings on that thing. And do you think that that really ticked God off? You better believe it. God hates it. Just as he hates abortion, he hates abortion. And if any of you ladies have had that and God has forgiven you, there's no condemnation here, okay? But God hates it, and he hates, and he will come against anyone who stands in the way of killing those innocent lives. So they were of the children the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them. What? Wait, I thought they were God's enemies. I thought God told them to eradicate, to destroy them. Yes, he did, but there was a, something that happened. And you might want to write in your margin Joshua chapter 9. Let me just summarize it really quick for the sake of time. When Joshua and the children of Israel came from the east and they were going west and they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, they were to eradicate all of these people groups, which are the only groups that really inhabited that land. And when they came to the city of Gibeon, which was a royal city, actually, as they were planning on raiding that city and doing exactly what God had told them to do, they didn't ask questions, they just obeyed him. They were getting ready to do that, and they receive a couple visitors who tell them that they were from a far land, you know, that they feign themselves to be, you know, having these old, you know, clothing and their sandals look really old and they had old moldy bread with them and they feigned to make Joshua believe that they had come from a long distant place and and now they're here and they're like, you know, make a a treaty with us, make a a pact with us um, because we want to be your servants because they knew that Israel was coming and so they're they're thinking we got to save our tails if we can here and so that's exactly what they do. They feign to be something other than what they are. And Joshua and the men of Israel, the elders, said, okay, we'll do that. We'll make a, 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 a pact with you. And we swear as an oath that we won't harm you or your people. And so they do. And then it comes to find out as they approach the city, it, it comes to their knowledge that these men were really imposters, but yet they had to be truthful to their oath that they made before God. Do you understand? And that's how serious the oath was. God told them to wipe out these people. These people deceived them, but nonetheless, God holds them responsible for the oath because of their, if they'd only inquired of the Lord, think of that. 
like David, inquired of the Lord. If they had only inquired of the Lord, Lord, we, we heard these guys, are they, really, are they real or not, or what's the deal here? God could have spoken to them very, very simply. Uh, Joshua, these men are deceivers. They're really from Gibeah, or from, from Gibeon. And I need you to wipe them out nonetheless. They're lying to you. They're deceiving you. But they make a pact. They make a treaty between the two of them, and so it's binding. And, the, and Joshua has enough uh, um, scruples and enough uh, morality in his heart to honor God and, and deal with it. So what do they do? They make them hewers of wood and drawers of water. So they do a lot of their manual labor for them. They become like slaves for them to do menial tasks. And the people were fine with that because guess what? They're alive. And, and they weren't hard taskmasters either. I mean, they, they made them do certain things, but they lived and they learned to feel good about this. And we're good with this. Hey, we're breathing. And our kids are breathing. We're, we're good with this, right? So that is the deal. That is the deal. So an oath had been made back in the time of Joshua, several hundreds of years prior to this. And so the king, you know, but it says there at the end of verse 2 that Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And again, we do not know where Saul did this. It's not recorded anywhere in the Scripture. But again, we believe it occurred around 1 Samuel 22 because um, during that massacre of Ahimelech the priests and the 85 other priests and their families, and it's believed that Saul killed the Gibeonites just prior to that chapter in chapter uh, 22 of 1 Samuel, because he intimated that he would give his fellow Benjamin, Benjamin, the fellow Benjamites, fields and vineyards. And, and he said that. He said that to his men. He says, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? He said this to his, his, his army. And where did he get those fields to begin with, those fields and vineyards? We believe that he got them because of his raid on the, Gibe, on the Gibeonites. He killed them, and he's going to give those lands and those vineyards to the Benjamites, his friends. Part of his family, in a sense. So again, we believe that that's probably where it occurred. But it's not recorded in Scripture anywhere, so we can't be dogmatic. But verse 3, it says, Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and what without shall I make atonement, uh, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And again, if David had inquired of the Lord on how he should have made this good to them, things may have been very different. Things may have been very different. Because oftentimes, we think there's choice A and choice B. We don't always know that there's a choice C or D. We're always, have, you, have you ever noticed this? Sometimes somebody will confront you with, you need to make this decision or this decision. And, you, and if you think about it, they're trying to trap you. And you're like, well, have you thought about this? No, no, no don't talk about that. But uh, uh, door number one or door number two, which is it? And you're like, well, there's a door number three. Well, don't, don't, don't talk about that. Door number one, or, you know, you get my point? Sometimes there are other ways that God can get things done. And all we have to do is what? Inquire of the Lord, right? And so when the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold, we don't want money from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, well, whatever you say, I will do for you. What a dangerous thing. David should have gone and inquired of the Lord and says, you know, Lord, um, before these guys tell me what they want to do, how do you want to resolve this? Because you're the one who told me that it's because of this famine, this famine is a result of this issue, this feud, this oath that had been made because Saul killed those Gibeonites. And those Gibeonites were protected back in Joshua 9. Do you remember? And so the oath is still binding. 
How do you want to deal with this, Lord? I'm sure the Lord would have given them a door C or D, but all that they're thinking about is this or this. And God could have very well done something different. And so here's their thing. And they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories in Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gabeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will inquire of the Lord first. (laughs) No, he says, I will give them. I will give them. Normally under the law, offspring of a man were not to be put to death because of their father's sin, and vice versa. It tells us in Deuteronomy 24, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. And so this is violating some things, but there is a binding oath here. Now again, if David would have inquired of the Lord, this whole thing could have been probably resolved without any loss of life, perhaps. But because of the oath that was made by Israel and the Gibeonites, it was permitted by David. David thought that good. Again, didn't inquire of the Lord. Perhaps he should have inquired of the Lord, and maybe there would have been a different outcome. And so, verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And again, this seems, to be, um, this seems to put the contents or the events of 2 Samuel 9 into context. In other words, David sought to see if there was anyone left of Saul's house that he could show kindness to, and, and it was indeed Mephibosheth. He was the only one out of that slaughter that Saul had done in killing those seven other brothers. Mephibosheth was spared. He was spared. And, um, and why did he spare Mephibosheth? Because of the oath. Because of the oath. Let me just give you a couple scriptures here. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, this was after David slew Goliath, and, and David and Jonathan's heart were knit together. It says that Jonathan made, uh, and David, they made a covenant because uh, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off his robe as the king's son, who was, who was Saul at the time. And he put it on, on David and with his armor, even to his sword and his belt and his bow. So they made a covenant. They made a vow with one another. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, this was during Saul's hatred for David and the moment that David and Jonathan made a covenant in the field before David fled into exile. It says, Jonathan speaking to David says, But you shall, and here, and, and, and not only shall you show me kindness, David, uh, of the Lord while I still yet live, because Jonathan realized that God's hand was on David and that his father Saul's reign was coming to an end. And Saul and David, they were like this. They were genuine friends. They loved each other. And so Jonathan said, David, make me a promise. Show me kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die. In other words, when you come into your kingdom, don't kill me. And David's like, please, Jonathan, you're the last person I'd want to kill. But David goes on, he says, But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So David was on, David didn't kill these seven men, you notice, but he did give them over. And so he's writing a thin line here. But he he stayed true to his covenant with Jonathan about his son. 
he made sure that, because David didn't kill him, but he was sort of guilty, I think, by handing them over because he knew what they were going to do to those men, which we're going to see here shortly. So not only was David honoring the covenant that was made back in the time of Joshua, but he was also honoring the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. And it's important that we are a people of our word as well. Right? It's better to not make a promise or an oath than to make a promise or an oath and not come through or not keep it. There was a time in our country, there was a time when men would shake hands and they would say things and their word was their bond and the handshake sealed the deal and there wasn't any need for lawyers. But now, lawyers are over everything because people can't be trusted. Men can't be trusted to keep their word any longer and now there's so much law involved and it's really a shame. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one white hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Anything that's other than yes, yes, no, no, the devil is knocking at your door. That's what he's saying. Even James, Jesus' half-brother, writing his letter in chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And so David here He sort of keeps his covenant with with Jonathan. He keeps his son alive. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth. Now, this Mephibosheth here in verse 8 is not Jonathan's son. Okay, So Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of who? Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and five sons of Michal. Remember Michal, Saul's daughter that he gave to David as a gift? That actually should be, you might want to scratch that out. And this is one of the corruptions that I wanted to tell you about in the text. That should be Merab, M-E-R-A-B. That should be Merab, because Merab, she was a daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholophite. She was the one who was married to Barzillai, not Michal. And so David delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them all on the hill before the Lord. And so they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. So again, um, the Mephibosheth mentioned in verse 8 is from Rizpah, one of Saul's concubines. You can put in your margin Second uh, Samuel chapter 3, verse 7. It'll, it'll tell you that very plainly. And... Um, and concerning Michal, mentioned in verse 8, she is supposed to be Mereb, uh, as I said. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23, it says, Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So she didn't have any children, but her sister Mereb did. And it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 19, it says, But it happened at the time when Mereb, Saul's daughter, 
should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. Do you follow what happened there? So this is just one of those small little details of the corruption in the text that occurred. Don't let it throw you. But that should be Merab and not um, Michal. And this discrepancy, actually, um, if you have an NIV in your Bible tonight, if you have an NIV with you, you'll notice that it will say Merab in that verse. In Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 21, verse 8, it'll actually say Merab because the Septuagint and many other Hebrew manuscripts, the majority of them have Merab in there in place instead of Michal. So we have every reason to believe, and it makes sense because she was not married to Adriel, the, um, the Maholothite. But by David doing this, what he was doing is following a law called lex talionis. Anybody heard that? It's Latin, and it means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In fact, I think that even on, I've actually seen gang members or have tattoos, lex talionis. They think that's really cool because, you know, it's not cool enough to put it in English. You know, but if you put it in Latin, all of a sudden you're like, dude, you are so cool. You know? Lex talionis. You know, and somehow that, you know, that, wow. Man, that guy is really something. Ooh, I'm, I, I get chills just being around him because he's got Latin on his shoulder. But lex talionis, it literally means lex is law and talionis is retaliation. So that's what it means. It's the law of retaliation. And God did have this as part of the way their judicial system was set up in Exodus 21. If a man fight and hurt a woman with child, and this is Exodus 21 verse 22, if, a man, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give her life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye out of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of the eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his female or male servant, he shall let him go free for the, 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 the tooth's sake. And so they, they set up laws that if you hurt somebody, you're going to get hurt in, in like manner. And I often wonder how our penal code would be, our laws today, and um, that's why, I, and some of you may not like this, but that's why I, I don't have a problem with the death penalty. I don't. And I don't make apology to that. Why? Because the person has an opportunity to receive Christ. Some people don't even get that opportunity. Because if you know you're going to the lethal injection or whatever, what does that do? That, that, that puts fear in people. Then they're they're, they're going to think a lot harder about killing somebody in cold blood I mean, it's different if it's involuntary manslaughter, you know, but, but if it's murder, premeditated murder, you're going to pay for that crime. I often wonder how things would be better if, in our country if we had uh, penal codes that said, you know what, if, if you steal from somebody, you're going to repay it five times, you know, back. I think things would, and they stuck by it, things would be a lot different today. But now, crime does pay, and criminals have learned this. They can do anything, and very rarely will they go to jail. Very rarely, most of the time, they just get their hands slapped. Don't do it again, Johnny. Stop that. Now go back to your cell with the cable television and the three square meals and the air conditioning and the heat. Oh, and the the free education, I forgot that. So that's what David did. 
Lex talionis. He, he allowed that to happen. It says now in verse 10, Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth, and she spread it for herself on the rock. Boy, I'm running out of time. <sighs> from the beginning of the harvest, which is around April, until the late rains poured on them from heaven, which is sometime in October. So we're talking about six months. So these bodies of these seven men are hanging and she is spreading a sackcloth, and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was customary for them to take the bodies down before the sun went down, but um, she did not. She kept the bodies up. Perhaps it was a way of, of maybe being angry about what happened, about the way the Gibeonites had done. Maybe that was just an open display to shame everybody for what had happened. Maybe it was a shame for David, too. David, why'd you allow this? Why didn't you inquire of the Lord and seek another option here? But, uh, and again, I'm, I'm just making things up here. I don't really know. But she allowed the bodies of these men, as they're decomposing from the noose, or for however they're hanging them up, and for six months... And she's watching them. She's outside with, you know, and she's watching these things happen. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And so David went and he took, and this is just the compassion of David. There wasn't really a mean bone in David. David was just trying to be obedient to the Lord, but he didn't quite follow through as well as I think he probably could have. Because he could have inquired of the Lord again, but he didn't. And God seemed to have allowed this. It's not, I, don't, I don't know if God was really pleased, but he allowed this. And it did quell the, 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 the problem between the Gibeonites and, and the children of Israel. And God brought rain. He brought it back. It was a done deal. But notice what David did. When he saw the, the love and the compassion of Rizpah, David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan. That was the only city on the western side of the uh, Jordan River of the Decapolis of the ten cities. That was the only one on the west side. And so where the Philistines had hung Jonathan and Saul up, and after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa, Verse 13, so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And by that time, I'm sure they were badly decomposed. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And so they performed all that the king commanded. And notice this. This is really uh, interesting. It says, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. I don't know if it was his perfect will. Um, his, the method, I don't know that it was the perfect method. I don't know. But God was appeased. Because now the, the, the Gibeonites were, um, justice was given, and God seemed to be okay with that. And so that's where we just have to leave it, right? And so I will. <laughs> so going on in verse 15, it says, and now we get into these, this last battle, and I'll make this quick because we just got a few more minutes here. In verse 15, it says that when the Philistines uh, were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. And, and then Ishbi Binab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the, the giant, the word there in the original language is Rapha. Okay, this is one of the giants. And in fact, these giants go all the way back to the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. There's this really neat uh, chronology, or um, not, uh, not, not a chronology, but a genealogy 
it's a rough one, but it shows where these men came from and how they're related to Anak and Anakim and and even Goliath and his family. Um, And we don't have time to go in that tonight. But it says that the Ishbibinab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, that's seven and a half pounds, who was bearing a new sword, he thought he would kill David. And so, but, but Abishai, who was uh, Joab's brother and also David's nephew, right? The son of Zeruiah came to David's aid and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. And then the men of David swore to him saying, you shall not go out any more with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, you're getting long in the tooth. You've been at battle a long time and now that you're getting older, we can't have you, David, going out with us into battle and getting faint and you know, uh, getting hypoglycemic out there on the field, right? <laughs> Whatever was happening there, um, his men wanted him to, to, to not be out there anymore. And it says it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob, which is another town. And then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. He was one of the sons of Rapha. And again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jair Origim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath. And First Chronicles, you might want to put in your uh, Bible there, First uh, Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, because in that verse, it gives us the name of Goliath's brother. His name was Lami, Lami, L-A-H-M-I. And so this man named Elnathan, Elhanan, I'm sorry, he killed Goliath's brother, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And yet again, there was war at Gath, which is one of the other six, uh, one of the other five Philistine cities, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. I can almost hear David saying, my name is David from Bethlehem. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Six-fingered man, do you get that? Anybody? All right, whatever. But um, so this man, he doesn't actually have a name. The Bible doesn't mention him. So science and people have given him a name, and his name is Hexadactylus. Hexadactylus. And that's just a condition, actually, a medical condition. It's a, 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 um, um, it is a, a, a mutation of a, of a gene. Uh, and, and for some reason, this gene was passed along for this, this family. It was uh, basically, a, I, I use this phrase, and I, I like to because it's fun. This whole family was like a genetic nightmare, the Goliath family, because they all had like, you know, they were just huge people. They were very tall, very big, you know, and so this gene or this condition was passed along. Um, whether it was gigantism or whether it pr- produced itself or manifested itself with six fingers and six toes. But it says that he was also born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, or Shimea, excuse me, his name is really Shama. Remember when uh, Samuel came to Jesse and, he's, and he was going to anoint one of his sons as king? Well, his third son, third from the oldest, was Shammah. That's who this is. The Bible calls him Shimea, but it's really Shammah. And so this young man, David's brother, is actually the one who took out this guy. Um, and, so, and then finally in verse 22 it says, These four were born to the giant, meaning born to Rapha 
in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. By the hand of his servants. So very interesting as we look into the Philistines. But um, it appears that um, this giant, this Rapha, he was not only Goliath's father and the progenitor, evidently, of these four men, including Goliath, but it is also possible that Goliath and Lami were born to this Raph, this, this giant, and that Ishbi Binab, Saf, and Hexadactylus, that was the name they gave to the science people have given to him, it's possible that those were Goliath's sons. It's really hard to tell whether they were all born of the giant. Indirectly, they were all born of the giant. They were all a mess. They were all in need of salvation, which they didn't receive because they were bent on destruction. And so... Um, but it's interesting here as, you know, as we look at the themes in this chapter, just to close up here, just the importance of keeping vows and promises. And David, you know, just keeping and, and allowing, you know, when he questioned the Lord about this, this, this famine in the land and God answering them because it's a vow that was broken, David. It was a vow that was broken back when Joshua came across the Jordan to get in the promised land. There was a promise, a vow that was made to those men and now... Your predecessor, Saul, has uh, reneged on that and killed those men, and there has to be an atonement. There has to be justice here. And nobody did anything, and God says, oh, I'll get your attention. (laughs) So he brings a, a famine, and finally David inquires, and God tells him. And finally it's rectified. But David keeps his own personal vow. Do you realize how sticky this was? It was very sticky <laughs> because David had to hand over seven of Saul's descendants and the only one that was left was Jonathan's son. Or I'm sorry, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. He's the only one who survived. And he survived because David made a vow. This whole thing is intertwined with promises and vows and God holding them accountable and David wanting to be truthful to his vow and, and walking that thin line. Do you see what a thin line he was walking? And, and that, that's sometimes the mess we get ourselves into when we make vows, especially if we don't intend on keeping them. So what's the point of the story tonight? As we look at this, let's be faithful to be truthful to our vows, to the promises that we make, to everyone. It would be better for us not to make a promise. I've had people tell me, well, I promise to do this, I promise to do that, and they don't come through. And I've even made those promises. I promise to do this. I've fallen into that myself. But you know what? I'm learning not to make promises. Just don't make a promise. And people don't like that. They want to pin you down. Are you going to be here? Yeah, man, I'll be there. I promise, but I swear to God. And God's going, no, don't do that. You're going to bring some serious trouble on yourself. See, we we throw it around like it's nothing, but God takes it very seriously. So I think we ought to, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we take it seriously? Everybody nod their head because you should. And so let's take those things seriously and don't promise. Don't make vows that you don't intend to keep. There's no, no harm, no foul. I would rather somebody get mad at me because I didn't swear to them than for me to swear to them and then me not follow through. Because I don't have control over my life, do you? I mean, most of the time. I mean, do you have complete control over your time and everything that happens in your life? Do you have complete control? None of us do. So why should I make empty promises that I, I don't, I'm not sure if I can keep? Because I could get in a car accident, I could have a flat tire, and I can't make my meeting downtown with somebody at 3 o'clock. I don't have the, I don't have the capacity. God can be on time. God can make promises. He can make promises... 
that are unconditional. And he can even make conditional promises, which is even really scary. If you do this, then I'll do this. And there's other times where he says, well, I'm going to do this regardless of your performance. Just sit down and take a break. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it. Read it and weep. Watch what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I love that about God. What's the other thing? It's just fortitude in difficult times. You know, as David is finishing off these final giants, him and his, him and his brothers and his nephews, as they're finishing off these giants, these these men of renown, as he finishes them off, he's, he's enduring to the end. He's, he's going at it with fortitude, and, and our life is not meaningless. Everything ought to have a purpose behind it. Everything that we do, make sure that your life is purposeful, that it's not just happenstance. I'm going to wake up, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Have a plan. Or, or if you don't have a plan, let God make your plan for the day. And be willing to take your to-do list and be willing for God to interrupt any one of those things. <laughs> have you ever had that happen where you have your list and God says, ah, nope, 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 ah, just those two things you do today and then rest the rest of the day. Really? Yeah. But no, we got to do all 20 of them. And by the end of the day, we're so frazzled, we're angry, we're looking at people like, I could have done a 21st thing if it wasn't for you. You know, we just always driven by to-do lists got to do it. And God's like, just do these three things and you'll be blessed. These three things. There's a reason I want you to do just these three things. The other stuff is not big of a deal. Just do these three things, Rob. Can you handle that? Oh, yes, I can do that. Oh. In Acts 14, it says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that true? I'm finding that as I await my Savior to come for me, for you, I'm waiting and in the process, is it easy? It is not easy, is it? It takes, it's going to take a lot. And we're going to go through and we're going to get bumps and we're going to have bruises and we might even get us bloody nose here and there. But you know what? Through much tribulation, we will enter the kingdom of God. But Paul exhorts Timothy, and we'll end here. He exhorts Timothy and he says, You therefore, Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, because no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And that's where, the way we need to be as well. And I'll leave you with this one verse. Just to encourage you, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, gave this wonderful benediction. He says, Now may the God of peace, and I say this to you tonight, May the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart completely, and may your whole heart, your soul and body, your spirit, your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Aren't you encouraged by that? Be encouraged by that. He is able to do it, and he loves you, and he wants to do it through you. And so let's, let's stand and pray. And um, Father, we just thank you for this night. And we, 
Lord, we do want to take the vows, the promises, the oaths very seriously, Lord. The vows that husbands make toward their wives and wives make toward their husbands, Lord. The promises that we make to family and friends. Lord, help us to be careful about those things. And, and Lord, just to not make those promises and just do the best we can to let our yes be yes and no be no. And Lord, give us uh, endurance, Lord, to run this race that we are in right now, Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a tough race. And many people in this room and many people online and many people will hear this later, Lord, they've gone through heavy, heavy difficulties. They've struggled, Lord. They've been crying. They've been hurt. They've been going through a lot. Lord, would you please encourage and strengthen them, their faith? And so we thank you for tonight, Lord. And I thank you for my friends here who have been so patient with me tonight. And just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.